Wildling Press presents How Do I Book? Welcome to How Do I Book by Wildling Press. We like to chat about book writing, book publishing, book marketing, and of course, book reading. We're trying to help new and experienced authors develop their craft, widen their perspectives, and learn to get a little wild every once in a while. I'm Mary Payton, and today I have a very special guest with me. Jamie Zachariah is the author of Lavender Speculation, a collection of queer horror short stories that would have made Shirley Jackson so proud. Thank you for chatting with me today on this very spooky episode, Jamie. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And Jamie's book, Lavender Speculation, came out two weeks ago now on October 17th. So very exciting. If you haven't gotten a copy yet, go to bookshop.org. I think they actually have it on a sale right now. Jamie's here to chat with us about one of my favorite short stories of all time, The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Just to give you guys a little bit of background, Shirley Jackson is a renowned horror and short story author who published most of her work in the 1940s, but it's still incredibly relevant today. Some of her most famous works are We Have Always Lived in the Castle. If you haven't read that, you have to. It's a Mm -hmm. pretty short book. Great for this time of year, the spooky season. And then The Haunting of Hill House, which has been made into lots of movies and TV shows. And then the short story we're talking about today, of course, is The Lottery. It was first published in 1948, and it's one of the most well-known horror short stories of all time. Probably one of the most well-known short stories in general of all time, I'd say. And we might have to spoil in order to talk about how great this story is, because a lot of the spookiness comes with a twist at the end, near the end. So if you haven't read this book, uh, the story, please pause this episode and go read it. It's very short, very good. And you will not regret it, I promise. No, and we can't talk about it without spoiling it. It'd be impossible, so. It really is, yeah. All right, so you've all been warned. Pause, go read it. Okay, so we'll do a little summary just to start off for anyone who, I know for me, it had been a while since I'd read it. I read it in school, probably in high school for the first time, and then again in college. What about you for the first time, Jamie? Do you remember? I think it was high school. I have a terrible memory, so, (laughs) but I'm I'm pretty sure it was in high school, yeah. All right. So the lottery takes place in a village, like a general village. We're not really sure where it takes place. It does feel like it's kind of like a small village somewhere in the U.S. maybe, but it's really not clear. That's all we got. And it starts on a beautiful day in June. And at 10 a.m., the villagers all meet in the town square for something that they call the lottery with a capital L. So we don't know what this thing is. We know that everyone's gathering. Kids are running around playing, waiting for it. Men and women are chatting and gossiping a bit. There's like a lot of small talk happening. But we'll talk about the little details in it that she gives us that make it already kind of creepy from the get-go. But anyway, so then a man comes out. He's just got a white shirt and blue jeans on. He's carrying a black box that he places on a stool in the center of the square and everyone's surrounding it. He calls each family by name and a representative from each family comes to grab a small piece of folded paper from the box, being careful not to look at it until they all do it at the end together. When they've all drawn from the box, everyone looks at their paper and all but one family has drawn a blank piece of paper, but that one family has a paper with a black dot on it. So that family, uh, I don't know if I even want to go into what happens there, but that's the lottery that we're talking about. And Jamie and I are going to go into what makes this story 
such a scary story and why it still has a great, such an impact on people today, even today. So you said you first read it in college. Do you remember how you felt when you first read the book? I mean, the story? Yeah, actually in high school. And I think that was the first time that I came across um, this type of story where it combined like realism with fantastical, but was still scary, if that makes sense. Because yes. up until then, everything I read was heavily genred. Goosebumps is horror. And, you know, right, right. American Girl was historical fiction. And you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, this was kind of that first example of speculative fiction and just the horror of the mundane. And I think that's what really stuck with me. Yes, it was exactly the same for me where this is one of the one of the stories that like really got me into loving short stories. And I could talk about them all day about how great the craft can be. Short stories do a great job of just that, of like blending genres and defying genre. A hundred percent. And I think the best stories are ones that don't fit nicely into one genre. I think a lot don't. It's easier to to put things into labels and boxes for marketing and for, you know, yes. that's just life. We want to organize and label everything. But really, at the end of the day, the best stories don't fit into one specific label. And I think Shirley Jackson is the perfect example of that. It's so true you know, working in publishing, we find ourselves having to do that in order to try and reach the audience that we want to reach. But a lot of times, these books, the best books don't really fit into a genre. So the power of great writing can really surpass that. Yeah. And that's why I'm so intrigued by the idea of speculative fiction. And I don't know the history of that term as a genre, but I think it probably presumably arose from not being able to fit everything into, you know, sci-fi, fantasy, horror. But then there's all these things that cross those and I think that's why we've come up with speculative fiction as a term. And I like it. I know some authors don't like it because it's so broad. I like it, though, because it means like you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, it reminds me as a label. It kind of reminds me of the label of emo music <laughs> because emo comes from like emotional, right? Like a lot of music, like great music, sparks some kind of emotion. So that doesn't really tell you really what kind of genre, like what kind of music it is, like speculative in general, is pretty broad. Like most literature speculates on something, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe maybe when it started out, it was a little confusing, but I think it fits perfectly now. It's this like kind of deeper look into our everyday through the lens of sci-fi, horror, some fantasy, stuff like that. Yeah. I think that for so long, genres such as horror and fantasy and sci-fi were considered not um, intelligent, not academic, not literary, they were looked down on. And I think now that we've come to realize that you can tell the same wonderful messages and that the writing and these genres are just as good as literary fiction. I think the term speculative fiction helps to elevate these genres yes. a little bit. Mm -hmm. Granted, someone like me who always reads horror is not going to see a horror book and assume it's anything less than a literary fiction book. But the general reader who doesn't have experience with it might. So Right. Maybe we've come up with this term to kind of give it the recognition it deserves. I like that a lot. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good point. So why do we think that this short story has become such a classic? What about it makes it so timeless? I think one of the things is just the reaction to it when it came out. So I think it was published in the the New York, the New Yorker, maybe? In the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. You're right. So at the time, you know, we have to put ourselves in that mindset, which is really hard to do. You know, you don't have the internet. <laughs> and um, 
Mm-hmm. So everybody who read this was reading it in the paper and had strong feelings. And I think up until that point, and maybe even beyond, it became one of the most responded to stories. People were writing in to New Yorker and to Shirley Jackson about their their feelings, positive and negative, about mm-hmm. the story. So it caused this like stir, this huge emotional response in people. And um, I mean, I I don't know the attention span now. I can't imagine taking the time to write a handwritten letter to a magazine or right. a, a newspaper about a story. But imagine the the emotions that you have to feel to, to be able to, to do that. Right. Yeah. It had such a strong emotional response at the time. And maybe if it was released today and hadn't been released back then, maybe it wouldn't be so shocking. But I mean, there's also thinking like if Shirley Jackson didn't published things in the 1940s, then would we even have such a strong genre of speculative fiction short story today? Absolutely. She's especially influential in how we talked about mixing genres, because, you know, Mm -hmm. for so long, if you were reading horror pulp stories, you were reading them in niche magazines, and you were probably a 13 year old, you know, they weren't considered like Mm -hmm. classy housewives weren't reading those. And maybe they were, but you know, they wouldn't talk about it. But Shirley Jackson allowed for horror and spookiness to be Cool, to be academic, to be intellectual. Yeah. And I think that this story really sums that up. Yeah, because she does it through the craft. And we'll talk about how she really makes this short story work in such a powerful way through using the craft of writing, of great writing. And because of that, she really showed that horror can be elevated writing, like you were talking about with speculative fiction. I think a big part of it, too, is the timelessness of the the setting. You know, it's a small town, small village, or at least maybe a rural area somewhere where things maybe move a little bit slower. There's a little bit more tradition happening, perhaps. But the guy that comes out with a black box in the beginning, he's wearing blue jeans. Like, that could, that could literally be any time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she doesn't really give – she gives a lot of detail without giving detail that – sets it in a certain time period or a certain place yeah which must have been really hard to do yeah like if if we if we did that exercise like any writer out there if you do an exercise where you try to write a story where it could be taking place in any time that would be pretty difficult to do with any real details yes she does it so well and she even mentions how the villagers have been doing this for so long and they say even the original black box was missing, but they still knew that they had to use stone. So she puts mm-hmm. the way she writes makes you know that this has been happening for a long time. It's steeped in tradition, but still mm-hmm. could be today. It could be 10 years ago. It could be 10 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the themes of the story a little bit. Part of the reason that it's so that the story is timeless is that she uses themes that are pretty timeless that could be relevant really in any time period. First of all, the theme of fear. And this one seems pretty obvious. It's a horror short story, right? But if you didn't know that going in, you would still understand that there's this underlying theme of fear and the way that humans react to it, this like tension and nervousness. And then of course, you know, the end (laughs) creates a lot of fear too. And then the theme of following tradition for tradition's sake, which I feel a lot currently in 2023, this idea of like, you know, a lot of people who just want to keep things the way they are to be comfortable Mm -hmm. The idea that we've been doing things this way for a long time and because of that, we shouldn't change it, which is such a frustrating (laughs) argument to try and have with people. But that that's another one. And then the third one that I found was the human desire to go along with the group, Mm -hmm. to belong, to try to not ruffle feathers, to do anything outside of the rules. 
Yeah. Even if those rules seem bizarre or unnecessary, that, that human desire to not stand apart from the crowd. Yeah. And the randomness sometimes of persecution, right? And this, yes. this book hits it all is very on the nose. And that's the, that's the point, the story rather. But like mm-hmm. when you look back in history, Jews have been persecuted, witches have been persecuted, people of color have been persecuted. And when you look at the whole line of history, it's random. And this story mm-hmm. takes it and makes it random and says, look what we do. This is how silly it is yeah. to try to assign a reason why we're persecuting people. Yeah, it's as random as pulling out a piece of paper with a black dot on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no reason that the ending should have happened to this this random family, this person. But it's it's apparently the way that things have been, and so they continue to do it. Who knows why? We talked a little bit earlier about the horror in the mundane. You mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. And I love that because that is such a strong element of what Shirley Jackson does so well. We Have Always Lived in the Castle does a similar thing where she can take these everyday small details and still give them this this creepiness and this tension that builds up throughout the story. Mm-hmm. And so many of her short stories, besides the lottery, rely on that same tactic, where it's just a normal, boring situation, but with a little bit of what if thrown in. Mm-hmm. And it makes you really contemplate your own um, like internal monologue and your own intrusive thoughts that come through. Because a lot of times it's like, oh, well, just like, what if I was like, <laughs> what if I just like lost it a little bit <laughs> like when you're doing the dishes or something yeah and a lot of her characters are just boring they're boring everyday people and i think that's what's so scary about it is like oh, that could be me that could be my neighbor that could be my friend and like maybe there's horror inside all of us oh i love that i mean i fully believe that you know people i think people are capable of a lot of good and a lot of bad and you know, I don't think it takes a monster to do monstrous things. Mm, well said. And I think this story really encapsulates that, that there can be a lot of horror and a lot of a lot of wrong done to people through tradition, through the things that feel normal or neutral. And the story really hits that on the head. Yeah. And plus, like, so it's not only the fact that it's like these mundane details that she somehow makes creepy, but also the fact that when we find out the ending, when we find out what the lottery is at the end, it makes them even creepier because the fact that these people were acting so casually and mundane and boring through the whole story, and then we find out what happens at the end. In the last two paragraphs, it turns the whole thing on its head and makes the entire story even scarier. Yeah. And I think that it's especially relevant today. It's, it's really hard. 2023, and it just it's hard. We see so much terrible stuff happening and you want to care and you do care. But at the same time, you can't not live your life. Like I still have to go do laundry, even though there's terrible things Mm -hmm. happening in the world. So the way that I relate to the characters in this is the most terrifying part. Yes. Like, oh, another mass shooting. Okay, got to go send some emails for work. It's it's just mind blowing the, the way of the world. And I think... That's why this story is so unsettling, especially today, yeah. because we all know what that feels like. Yeah, and I think we all know what it feels like to be kind of all of the characters in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the characters that really act a bit uncomfortable through the whole thing. Like, they're not totally okay with it, but they go along with it because mm-hmm. they think they have to. And then there's the characters, like, there's an old man in this who says, like, 
it's the way it should be and you kids are just whining and these kids who want a new world are just whining and they don't realize how hard life is. And that, man, I know a lot of people like that in 2023, (laughs) especially. I think especially now with social media, TikTok, Instagram, where we get so much more information about things going on in the world, which is important and good. We shouldn't be able to turn a blind eye to awful things happening elsewhere. But we have to figure out also how to take care of ourselves at the same time. And oh, man, it's just it's hard to even put it into words. Like you're talking about sending emails for work. You got to survive, right? Like you have to be able to get through your every day. Mm -hmm. But where do you draw the line on, okay, I'm getting too comfortable and we need to all band together and stop these awful things from happening or just surviving. It's like such a tough line to know where to be, especially these days. But, you know, back in the 1940s, she was writing about it. So Mm -hmm. self-preservation is, I feel like, at the heart of so much of what we do subconsciously. And it should be. That makes sense. We're we're organisms that have evolved to survive. And then once you become conscious of all this other stuff, it really is a just a mental struggle. And I think Shirley Jackson felt that struggle very keenly. And she was very creative in the way she found ways like the lottery and her other stories, her other writings to express that. And I think it was because a lot of people weren't embracing their ability or desire to express that at the time that she was often like considered weird or quirky or different. But now, in hindsight, when more of us have come around to that way of thinking, we can appreciate her genius and her willingness to to really put out there those that painful kind of struggle that so many people were probably trying to ignore at the time. Yes. Yeah, I think it's true that a lot of writers in general have a, a strong empathy and an ability to put themselves in other people's shoes, which is great. That's a skill and that makes writing really good. Um, but it also makes life a little harder to, to be able to experience more of the pain that other people feel more strongly, mm-hmm. even if it's not happening to you. Um, I actually read a little bit about her and apparently she she had a lot of anxiety and like trouble sleeping and like her doctors prescribed her pills for it and uh she ended up having a cardiac arrest when she was not that old she was like 50 something i think yeah i i too am halfway through a biography of hers i don't know if this is the same one you were reading but it's shirley jackson a rather haunted life by ruth franklin um and it seems to be very well researched um again i'm not personally fact checking but there is a substantial notes and references section and um reading about her life and the things she goes through, it's it really gives an insight into that. You know, she was a mother. She was married to um, another writer who arguably is a narcissistic egomaniac and not as good of a writer as her. <laughs> Maybe that's just me being biased. Imagine what it's like to be so talented, but to be constantly in the shadow of your partner, because partly because of the, the personality that he had and partly because, you know, in the 40s, that was how it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that probably <laughs> contributed a lot to her anxiety, which ironically contributed a lot to her amazing writing, right? It's like full circle. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's no secret that creatives use their mental health issues. And I say that from a personal perspective as a writer, too, to create the stuff we do. That's just that's how it is. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like people who write music, too. You know, some of the best music comes out of like heartbreak and turmoil in the songwriter's life, mm-hmm. which you don't want it to happen, but great art comes from it, you know? So yeah. mm-hmm. it's a silver lining for sure. Talking about the casual mundane details that she uses in her writing, mm-hmm. 
in this story too she doesn't just use like casual mundane details she twists them slightly so that they're like a little bit off you know so you get this this vibe of like huh that was weird i wonder what that was but kind of quick enough that you just keep moving through the story and Mm -hmm. then when you get to the end it all makes sense for instance when the people are gathering initially in the square you know i said there's a lot of small talk happening it seems pretty normal but there are little details that she throws in that make it a little odd like the kids are running around playing and a lot of them are gathering stones and putting them in a pile. Mm-hmm. You know, kids being kids, wild. But like, why are they making this giant pile of stones? Oh, it's probably nothing. Let's just, you know, move on in the story. And then she she makes a point to say that, you know, the men are t- talking and smiling, but not laughing. Like, she specifically says that they're smiling, mm-hmm. but not laughing. And you're like, okay, why does she feel the need to say that? That they're smiling, but not really feeling the joy, you know, all the way. And then the ominous black box is just referred to as a black box. She gives all these details about, you know, where they keep it and how they've had to change it over the years. And then the little details about people talking in their small talk about whether they need to do away with a lottery or not. So you're like, okay, this maybe isn't such a great thing, this lottery. Like, maybe it's not, it's mm-hmm. not a reward <laughs> at the end of yeah. this. Like, it's yeah. probably not. Um, so all those small details are normal, but give you just a hint of the, the off. The, the odd, tiny little strange, bizarre details. Yeah. She has such a great way of building the dread, too. Starting with, like, mm-hmm. eh, nothing, and then little by little by little. You don't even realize it. By the end of the story, you're like, oh, <laughs> you have, like, physical shivers. Yeah. By the end of the story, you don't know what the lottery is, like, up until the end. You don't really know what it is, but you know that you don't want someone to draw a black dot. Like, yes. you don't. <laughs> you would not want to be that person. You know that by the end of it. And, you know... Another thing that I think is brilliant about her writing and this story in particular is that we never find out why. So like, it's not like Mm -hmm. they're doing this lottery every year to appease the elder gods who have granted Mm -hmm. crops to them or something that makes sense. You never find out why. And there's, Mm -hmm. and if you think about it, they're probably, it is probably simply just tradition or superstition. All of those are are terrifying, but we never find out why. And I think she did that on purpose. And I'm so happy she did that because it makes the story that much more terrifying. Yes, it makes it more terrifying. It keeps with that timeless theme that it could be happening anywhere at any time. It could be your own hometown. Mm -hmm. It also, it goes deeper into the theme of like, if you don't know the reason for something and you just continue a tradition for for tradition's sake or for um, procedure's sake, then you could be missing out on making things better. Yes, that's so true. You have to, we're supposed to ask why. We're supposed to change. We're supposed to evolve. And when we refuse to, that's terrifying, Mm -hmm. obviously, as shown in the lottery. Yeah, because they even mention, they mention other towns where they heard that they don't do the lottery anymore. We get the idea that it's not necessary, Mm -hmm. at least anymore. I don't, I don't know a situation where it would have been, but at least at some point it started because they felt it was necessary, I guess. And they, they hear about these stories about other towns where it's not happening anymore. And this this older man who has been through the lottery many, many years, he's like, no, we're not going to change it. Those are just kids being kids trying to change things and ruin what we've got going on. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that same mentality that we see all the time. I know. I, th- I think that there are a thousand different reasons why we can relate to those in a thousand different people, types of people who can relate to that. But, you know, speaking from my personal experience as a queer woman, it's like, oh, yes, 
oh, well, you shouldn't be allowed to get married because it's always just been that way. You know, mm-hmm. the, you they can make yeah. that argument about anything and it's so detrimental to progress. And here we go with the very on the nose, but importantly so example of it. Yes, exactly. So Jamie, your book, Lavender Speculation, is a collection of short stories, speculative fiction stories, um, including some horror, a little bit of like sci-fi, fantasy, witchy stuff. Why did you choose short stories yourself? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, so I think for me, I write how I feel. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it's like bursts of intense emotion. And then when it's done, I'm done. And then the story's done. And I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to have to explain where or how those things came about. So that's why a lot of times my stories really don't have beginnings or endings. They just are. They just exist as they are. And I do think that a lot of times less is more. And I wish I could say that I did that on purpose because it's like a craft thing. I don't think I'm at that point as as a writer. But I mm-hmm. think that a lot of people who are, for example, Shirley Jackson, understand less is more when it comes to horror or when it comes to telling these stories. And um Sometimes if you don't leave enough for your reader to imagine, they'll forget about you. Yeah. There's a reason that short stories, even if you read them and you think, oh, that was pretty good, and don't think much of it, a great short story will stay with you. You'll continue to think about it for days, for months, for years afterwards. Mm -hmm. First of all, short story writers, the great ones, are really good at that show versus tell. You know, as publishers and editors, we talk about it all the time. Writers, you hear that all the time. When we read a story, we want to read the story happening. We don't want to really, depending on the the genre, of course, um, we don't want to hear, you know, the author's analysis of it, really. We want to watch the story unfold and be able to have something to think about later ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. short stories are such a great example of that because they really, like you said, your stories don't tend to have a beginning or an end. That's, to me, that's like an ideal short story. That's what it should be. It should be this like glimpse Like you're looking through the keyhole for a few minutes at someone's life or some world that's been happening both before the story and after the story. But you just get this little glimpse of it and it gives you just enough to understand what you need to understand to know what the story is about. And then, you know, create your own theories and ideas about what it might mean and what the themes are and the messages. Mm -hmm. I think that's like the ideal short story setup right there. Yeah, and I think that's because Shirley Jackson is just so excellent at doing that. And you read through her collections, it's like, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. She's definitely an inspiration of mine, and she's my favorite author, so I'm biased, but... Oh, she's your favorite author, like, of all Mm -hmm. time? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. I just knew... I invited you on here because I just knew that... I think you had talked about her before in in a podcast or maybe something like that. Yeah. Very cool. I didn't know that. Man, she's up there for me, too. She's got to be top five for me as well. Yeah. Because she's just so good at giving you just enough so that her, her even her even her full books yeah. leave you just thinking about them for, for years afterward. Mm-hmm. They're just so perfectly crafted. Just the way, yeah. Oh, I think Hill House is one of the most brilliant pieces of literature we've ever written. Yeah, absolutely. I wish we had more from her, honestly. Like, there's, there's definitely more of hers that I haven't read yet. Apparently, she wrote some either essays or pieces about raising children. I don't know if you've read those. Those are the only ones I haven't read yet. And they're called things like uh, how to raise demons or something like that, yeah. like raising savages or something like that. I can't remember what they're called, but 
They sound snarky and I'm I want to read those. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't gotten to those yet. <laughs> yeah. Maybe because I don't have children and I haven't got I right. haven't made those a priority. But a bird's nest is one of the first depictions of, you know, someone with that I don't want to spoil it. This uh the certain mental um disorder that the person in that book was going through. We we've seen it a hundred times now, but when it came out, it was like one of the first times anyone had ever talked about it. Um, the sundial, which is really just kind of like another, it's like the lottery in that she just builds dread. Yeah. Like dread, dread is the word I keep coming back to with Shirley Jackson's work. She builds it without saying the characters are feeling that way, but you know it mm-hmm. and you yeah. feel it in your bones when you read what she's writing. Yeah, any, honestly, any writers out there, it doesn't matter what genre you write in or what length of book you you like to write, read Shirley Jackson because she is such an excellent example of good writing for any genre, just in the craft in general. Every single line in her stories and her books is important. There is no, there's no fluff, nothing extraneous. It all builds and matters to the story. And that's hard to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, do you have any other short stories or creepy short stories specifically that you would recommend since it's Halloween? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, yeah. I I haven't read it yet, but I picked up a collection that I'm fairly looking forward to reading. It's called Never Whistle at Night, um, and it's a collection mm. of indigenous dark fiction. Ooh. So I just got my copy because it's really new, and I'm really excited to read it. The reviews are great. I like that they call it dark fiction too. That's a kind of like speculative fiction in that like it gives you exactly what you need to know about what what mm-hmm. the stories are going to be like, but it still leaves it broad enough that it can be about yeah. other topics. If you can email me honestly the title and stuff so I don't forget it, I would love to also I'm going to see if my library has that book too. Yeah, it's like I said it's pretty new. I just got my copy. I'll send that to you. If anyone out there, any listeners have any recommendations too, definitely shoot us an email and let us know what your recommendations are, because I, especially this time of year, I want to get into some spooky short stories, that's for sure. Yeah, actually, no. now that you mentioned that, there was another one I want to bring up. So Amazon, or Audible rather, has did this collection of short stories with like an animalistic trend. And the one Ooh. that really I love so much, I haven't read them all, but this one that really stood out to me is called Bloody Summer. It's by Carmen Maria Machado, who you might know because she wrote Her Body and Other Parties, which is a wonderful collection. And then this collection, and then I think Audible has another collection of short stories that they just came out with. But I I was happy to see the diversity with the authors contributing to them. Yeah, so Bloody Summer was amazing. Definitely read that one. Okay, got it. Is there anything else, Jamie, that you want to say about the short stories or your favorite author? I just, I I love that people are more embracing short stories more now than they have. And so for those who haven't yet, just give it a try. And if you're going to give it a try, start with the lottery and you will not be disappointed. Yes. It'll take you 10 minutes maybe to read it. And yeah, you won't stop thinking about it forever. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, there's nothing scarier than censorship. So this month, make it a point to visit ALA.org. Um, that's the American Library Association pen.org and your local library to find out how you can fight the terrifying rise in censorship across the u.s and that's how you book this episode was recorded and edited by me mary payton our logo was designed by michael hardison our theme music was produced by jason hilton at negative selections on instagram visit us online at wildling press on social media or at wildlingpress.com